0: Welcome to Deep Hollows and Dark Hearts, a podcast set in rural West Virginia about the things that we may not always understand. I'm your host, John Adkins. Let's get down to it.
1: Deep hollows and dark hearts, empty valleys full of bidden arms.
2: Dark hearts bring us together and tear us apart
0: welcome back everyone there's been a lot happened since our pilot episode and we trust you had a happy Halloween and a venerated Veterans Day here at Deep Hollows and Dark Hearts we've been hard at work to bring you more macabre myths and terrifying tales from out here in our backwoods. All that alliteration aside, we are glad to have you back, and if this is your first time, welcome to our little slice of home. We ask you once again to please leave us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts, as that helps raise awareness of our show to the world at large. And please tell everyone you know about us, and get them to give us a listen. For now, we present the first of tonight's stories. Fishing is a very popular pastime here in West Virginia. Whether it's pro-anglers with top-of-the-line equipment, catfish noodlers, or just folks looking to relax by the water, fishing brings out all different types of people from all different walks of life. But if there is one thing anglers are known for more than the fish they catch, it's the embellished tales of the ones that got away. Sometimes a fisherman goes out, maybe has one too many cold ones, and tells all his buddies about the two-foot-long trout he reeled in the night before, but of course the line snapped when he got it up on the riverbank. But what if the angler was telling the truth about the river monster he saw the night before? What if there's more than bass and muskies lurking in the depths of those muddy waters? This is Ogwa.
2: It was 6 p.m., and for Raymond Hobbs, that meant one thing. It was quitting time. He finished ringing up the last customer of the day, a teenage kid looking for a set of deep well sockets while working on his first project car, and locked the store doors as the kid walked out. Raymond, a Canova native, was 44 years old, and thanks to his time in the Army, had a bad knee. But he made his way back to his register quick enough, and counted and closed out the till. He made one last pass through the store, raised tool and hardware, making sure there weren't any stragglers left lurking in the aisles, and turned out the lights. He left the shop through the back door, making certain to lock it and arm the security system, and walked to his truck, an old two-tone Chevy his daddy had passed down to him years ago. The vinyl in the bench seat was cracked and faded with the foam poking out in several places. And nearly every single part under the hood had been replaced at least twice since he'd owned it. But when he'd turned the key, the engine roared to life with a little hesitation. Atta girl Opal, Raymond said, patting the dashboard just behind the steering wheel. The name given by his father years ago was chosen because it matched the color the truck had been when he bought it used. Though the old girl had gone through a few paint jobs over the years, The name had stuck. Ray turned the radio to some classic country, put the truck in gear, and made his way across the town to Virginia Point Park. It was a short drive, and once he had parked, Raymond let down the tailgate and grabbed his fishing pole, a folding lawn chair, an old ammo box that served as his tackle box, and a small cooler with a strap that he slung over his shoulder. He winced, the pain in his knee flaring up, but walked down to the bank of the Ohio River and set up a chair. Easing down into the chair, he pulled a styrofoam container of nightcrawlers and an ice-cold bottle of yingling from his cooler, baited his hook, cast his line upstream, and took a long pull from his beer. He sighed contentedly, watching the sun as it lazily drifted toward the horizon, painting the sky shades of red, pink, and purple. Raymond thought back to the old adage his grandpa had taught him. Red sky at night,
0: sailor's delight.
2: Raymond muttered to himself, smiling, The shop will be closed tomorrow, which meant he'd have a whole day of pretty weather to fish. He looked to the west, across the big sandy river to Catlettsburg, Kentucky, and then to the north, across the mighty Ohio River to South Point, Ohio, and thank God yet again that he was born a mountaineer. Ray took another drink of beer, then laid his head back. It wouldn't hurt anything to close his eyes for a minute. And in that minute, Raymond fell asleep in his chair and dreamed of catching the state-record catfish. Raymond awoke with a start, spilling warm beer on his lap. Ah, damn it! He stood, letting some of the beer run off his jeans and onto the ground, but some had already soaked into the fabric. He strained his eyes, but the sky had long since gone dark, the nearly full moon hiding behind the clouds. He checked his wristwatch... A digital piece with a button to illuminate the face, and check the time. It read 827. Without meaning to, he had slept in his chair for over two hours. He picked up his fishing pole, which he had apparently dropped, and reeled the line in. The hook was clean. The worm picked away by nibbling fish too clever to bite down and get caught. He grumbled and started to pack up his gear. The clouds parted and the moon lit up the park, which Raymond was grateful for. He looked across the big sandy and saw a doe standing on the banks of the Kentucky side of the river, bending down to drink. He watched her for a moment, certain she hadn't spotted him yet. She drank for what seemed like a long time, then took a few steps back to graze on the weeds and grass by the river bank. The moon became engulfed in clouds again, shrouding the deer, though he could still just make out her silhouette if he squinted. He turned and folded up his chair, carrying it back to the truck, and dreaming about catching the biggest damn catfish in the Ohio River tomorrow. And then he heard it. Something crying out as if in pain. It sounded like it was coming from the other side of the Big Sandy. He turned quickly, squinting against the darkness to make out what was going on. The clouds thinned in that moment, teasing to part. But the thinning provided enough light that Raymond could make out the dough. She was down on the ground, lying on her side, and she was bleeding and wailing. He couldn't see anything else around, no human, or bear, or buck. Something came out of the water. It was two feet long, whatever it was. It just broke the surface of the river, moving toward the bank where the doe lay, crying. It looked vaguely reptilian in the darkness, almost like the head of an alligator. But this wasn't gator country, not by a long shot. Raymond rubbed his eyes, knowing he must be seeing things. When he opened his eyes again, there were two of them, side by side, both going at the same speed. In a flash, an enormous two-headed shape emerged from the water, both mouths clamping down on the doe and dragged her into the river. She kicked and fought, but almost in the blink of an eye, both the doe and the thing that had grabbed her were lost beneath the dark, muddy waters of the big, sandy river. Raymond stood in stunned silence for a moment, petrified. There shouldn't be anything in these waters big enough to do what had just been done, let alone have two heads. Something splashed in the river nearby, and Raymond dropped his chair, sprinting for his truck. The pain in his bad knee was excruciating, but he wasn't about to let whatever killed that doe claim him too. He leapt into the truck, slammed the door, and drove off too scared to look back. The next evening, Raymond sat in Good's barber shop, waiting for his weekly shave and trim. He regaled his story to Neil Good, the owner, and the other regulars in the shop.
0: And then, this massive lizard thing with two heads jumped up out of the river and snatched up the deer. A
2: two-headed lizard? What are you going on about, Ray? How hard were you hitting the sauce last night? Raymond glared at Frank Schultz, who sat across from him in the waiting area. Now, I did have half
0: a beer last night, but I'm no lightweight. It may have been dark, but I know what I saw.
2: Yeah, you saw a gator with two heads in the big Sandy eat a deer. Was there anybody with you? Anybody that can back you up other than Jack or Jim? Go to hell, Frank. Frank laughed, (laughs) and Raymond crossed his arms, annoyed. Neil, the barber, set down the clippers and picked up a straight knife to give the man in the chair, a newcomer Raymond didn't recognize, a shave. The shop was quiet for a minute.
1: The thing you saw, would you say it looked like a turtle? Well,
0: it was dark, and it moved quicker than grease lightning, but it was massive. I suppose it could have looked like a turtle, but it was 20 foot long easy.
2: The shop was quiet for a long moment as Neil shaved the man's face. When he finished, he applied aftershave and removed the bib from the man, brushing his neck and shoulders off. The man paid, leaving the shop. Neil picked up a broom sweeping hair from around the chair. Ogwa. What's that,
1: Neil? I'm not talking to you, Frank. So just mind your own damn business. <laughs> the thing you saw, Raymond. They call it the Ogwa. Never heard of one this far west of the Monongahela, but most people have never heard of it at all. What is it? Legend, most people say. Stories we tell our kids to keep them away from the river. But I've seen one before. You're just
2: as crazy as Ray is, Neil. Neil threw his broom down, enraged. Frank, just get the hell out of my shop. I said, get the hell out. Raymond was taken aback by Neil's outburst. In all his years coming here, he had never seen Neil so much as raise his voice, let alone scream at a customer to leave. Frank, indignant, quickly left the shop, and Neil locked the door behind him. Flipping the sign from open to closed.
1: Now, you say you were at Virginia Point Park?
0: Yeah, that's right.
1: Give me a minute to clean
2: up, and I'll head back down there with you. Raymond watched as Neil closed up shop, sweeping the floors, wiping down scissors and clippers, and changing out the barbicide. When he was finished, Neil unlocked the front door and let Raymond out. Head on down. I've got to make a quick stop, and I'll be down there. Raymond drove to the park, which was oddly empty for a Saturday, and carried his gear down to the riverbank. He baited his fishing rod and cast it out, hoping to catch something before Neil showed back up again. After a couple of minutes, he felt a tug on the line and gave the rod a light jerk. Whatever had been nibbling must have got away as his line went slack again. He sat, enjoying the quiet evening, trying not to think of the reason he was here in the first place. Maybe Frank was right. It had been late, and he had been drinking. Maybe he was just seeing things. car approached from behind, and he turned to see Neil driving up in his old beat-up Jeep, parking in the grass just behind him. Neil climbed out and reached back into the car, pulling out a shotgun and tossing it to Raymond. Neil, what the hell, man? What are you doing? Raymond, years ago,
1: I used to live in Fairmont, had a wife, had a good job, had a son, but also had a real problem with the sauce. It started with just a little nip at lunch to help take the edge off. Then before I knew it, I was adding a shot of whiskey to my morning coffee and keeping a secret flash in my jacket at all times. I was a full-blown alcoholic. Well, one day I decided to go fishing on the Monongahela. I got up bright and early, and I took my son with me, who was seven at the time. Well, as the day went on, I was throwing him back. And by evening, I was pretty well south. Jimmy, my boy, started to get a bite, and he started struggling. Help me, Daddy. I got a big one, Daddy. I can't reel him in by myself. Well, I was so pissed drunk. I couldn't even stand up, let alone walk over and fight with a fishing rod. So I told him he was a big man now and to just reel him himself. He must have fought that sucker for 20 minutes. But eventually he lost his grip and the pole went into the river. The line must have broke because the rod just laid there, floating on the surf. Jimmy begged me to wade in there and fetch his pole for him. But I was drunk as a damn skunk at that point, so I told him to get it himself. The river was low and shallow, and the current wasn't too bad. So he got started to wade out, and he got about a foot from his pole, the water up to his little chest. The pole shot under the water like a bullet. Jimmy backed up, scared, but the pole backed up to the surface. I hollered at him, Get after it, boy, and he snatched that pole up. He was happy as could be. As he turned to wade back up to the river bank, The water behind him started to part, and in the blink of an eye, a massive two headed turtle leapt out of the river and both mouths clamped down on my boy. He screamed and he fought, but the bastard had him under the water just as fast as it had emerged. I ran, tripping over my own drunk feet, and waded out to where Jimmy had just been. But I was too late, my son was gone, all that was left was a broken fishing pole and blood in the water. Of course, no one believed a beer-soaked sot when he talked about a monster eating his son. My wife left me, said I was too drunk to save him from drowning. She was right. I was too late to save Jimmy. But three sheets to the wind or not, I know what took my boy. It was the same bastard you saw last night. I gave up drinking that night, and tonight I'm going to drag that thing to hell if it's the last thing I do.
2: Raymond stared at Neil for a long minute, stunned for the story, sympathetic for his loss, but more than anything, he admired the dedication in Neil's voice. Well, let's get him, Neil. For Jimmy. Thanks, Ray.
1: I stopped at the grocery store bought a rack of ribs. I figure we can hook it up to the winch on the front of my jeep and use that as bait for it. You think that'll work? It's worth a shot. I've waited too long to not try now
2: that he's here. They baited the winch hook with a rack of ribs and let out the line on the winch. Raymond waded out waist deep in the river, the cool autumn water taking his breath away. He heaved the ribs as far as he could and they landed with a loud splash. They watched the ribs slowly sink under the water, pulled by the weight of the hook. Raymond waded back up to shore. How do we know he's took the bait?
1: We'll know. And he's a big son of a bitch, and he'll let us know when he's got it. Come on, let's warm up in the Jeep. There's some coffee in that thermos. It's not the best, but it'll knock off some of the cold. Thanks. Thanks. So, have you lived in Canova since... No, i moved around a lot. Word travels fast, and it didn't take long before people in a new town get wind of the past. I settled down in North Carolina for a spell, but something started calling me back home. I've been here for about a decade now.
0: You? I've lived here all my life. Did some time in the Army right after high school. Got out, saw the world, got some shrapnel in my leg, and parted ways with Uncle Sam. Came back home, opened up the shop, and I've just sort of existed ever since. Never married? Nah. Had a pretty little thing before I shipped out, but about two months into my deployment, she stopped writing back. There were a few after I got back, but never anything serious. Since coming back home, all I've focused on is running the store. You ever have any regrets? (sighs) Don't we all? Sometimes I feel like I wasted the prime of my life building for a future that, these days, is looking pretty bleak and lonely. It's not too late.
1: It never is. Take it from an old timer who wasted his prime in the bottle and the rest of his life mourning his loss. It's not too late for you. Do what truly makes you happy before you're like me
2: and feel like you're trapped by your own decisions. Raymond and Neil sat quietly for a moment, Ray reflecting on the older man's sage advice. He finished his cup of coffee and reached for the thermos, but the jeep lunged forward violently. Shit! We got him! Neil shifted the jeep into reverse and hit the accelerator. The engine revved and they stopped skidding toward the river. Neil applied a little more pressure to the accelerator, and the jeep inched backwards slowly. The winch line taut before them. The line jerked to the right, rocking the car, but Neil applied more pressure to the pedal. They began skidding toward the river again, and Neil put the pedal to the floor. The engine roared, and the jeep held its ground.
1: You're going to have to go out there and work the winch. I'm hammered down here, and he's still pulling.
2: Raymond jumped out of the jeep, sending shockwaves of pain up his leg, but hurried to the front bumper and started the winch. It groaned in protest, but the line finally began to wind back up, inch by inch. Raymond stepped away, fearing another lunge towards the jeep. The anticipation building in his chest, Raymond watched where the line met the water in the dim light of twilight. The line moved left and right as the monster on the other end fought against it but the winch and the jeep combined were slowly winning that fight. Raymond ran back to the cab to get the shotgun when he heard a splash. He spun around to see the massive form of the beast rise from the river, hook firmly set in one of the two mouths. Neil parked the jeep and set the emergency brake and hopped out. The winch continued to whir, and Raymond saw it start to smoke. Neil was barreling down on the agua now, taking aim with the shotgun as he did so. The monster flailed and struggled against the hook, and Neil fired the gun. Lead pellets rained down on the beast, several ricocheting off the shell, but many more embedding themselves in the exposed flesh of its two faces. Neil, undeterred, fired another shot, peppering the beast again. It stopped fighting against the line and fell limp, by now its massive body scraping into the bank of the river. Raymond shut off the winch before the motor burned up and walked down the riverbank. The animal was enormous, close to 15 feet long, and looked like a giant alligator snapping turtle, only with two heads. It was wrinkly and ancient looking, covered in scratches along its shell. Neil was breaking down his shotgun and reloading it as Raymond just marveled at the creature before him in the creeping darkness. Is this it?
1: Yeah, that's the bastard that took Jimmy, all right. What a beauty.
0: You reckon it's the only one?
1: Well, by God, I hope so. There were sightings of this thing as far back as the 1700s. I
0: mean, turtles can grow pretty old. Older than most people. But if this is the same creature, that'd have to be some kind of new record. What
1: do we do with it? Hell, if I know. Guess we can call in some help Butcher this thing. We could have turtle soup for years to come. Ah, oh, damn it.
2: Neil dropped one of his shotgun shells and bent to pick it up. In the blink of an eye, the creature lunged, one of the heads biting down on Neil's arm up past the elbow. Neil grunted in pain and protest, but never screamed. He dropped the gun and the other shells, but Raymond snatched up the gun. The weapon was useless without any ammo but in the frenzy of the moment, Raymond instead used it as a club and began to slam the barrel down on the head that was latched onto Neil. After a few blows, the other head seemed to finally come back to life and bit down on the barrel of the gun. Raymond, too stubborn to let go, was flung into the air. He heard the snap of the winch cable as he was slammed down hard in the cold, shallow water. Dazed and out of breath, it took a moment for Raymond's wits to return and when he sat up, he heard a sickening crunch. He looked to Neil, the stump of an arm now dangling and pouring blood. Neil fell backward, and one of the heads bit down on his leg. Raymond scrambled to his feet, drawing a bowie knife he had kept tucked in his boot since his days in the army, and sunk the blade hilt deep in the eye socket of the other head before it could bite down on Neil too. The creature shrieked, and Raymond plunged the blade into the other eye as well. He stabbed again and again and again, losing count of how many times, through the eyes and through the top of the skull. The head fell limp, but the monster was still alive, its other head still biting down on Neil. A giant clawed hand smacked at Raymond, the claws as long and as sharp as kitchen knives. They scraped along his chest, carving deep grooves into his skin. Raymond fell back, crying out in pain. When he looked up, the monster with Neil's now limp body still in its mouth turned and submerged back into the river, leaving behind a pool of blood on the bank. Raymond laid back on the bank. The sound of sirens started in the distance, and he slipped into dark nothingness. Many secrets lie under the surface
0: of the water down here. And while Raymond and Neil came close to uncovering one, in the end, the one that got away escaped with more than just its own life. But there's no time to dwell on our losses now. Let's move on to our next story. Allow us to take you on a stroll down memory lane, for those of you with a few years behind you. It's that time just after high school, when you're young and restless, and the whole world is laid out before you. Maybe you're working one of your first jobs, or maybe you're lucky enough to have a little extra time on your hands. You've got your license, and when you're behind the wheel of a car, or riding shotgun with your best friend, you feel a freedom like you've never known before. You're free to be young, you're free to make mistakes, free to explore your world. And it's that first taste of freedom and exploration that makes the world look brand new and exciting. Some of you went to scout colleges. Some of you visited family or friends. Some of you filled in the areas of the map around you that you'd never been to before. And some of you, some of the more morbid among you, may have even taken a trip to a cemetery or haunted house at night so as our theme song says wander in the wander with a pair of adventurous young souls in our next tale crimson steps
3: i'm awanita lewis but my friends just call me nita My name means fawn, so that's what my dad has always called me. My mom picked my name. Dad used to say she was part Cherokee, but good luck finding someone around here who doesn't claim some native ancestry somewhere down the line. I never really knew my mom. She passed away a long time ago, when I was just a baby. That's when my dad decided to move the two of us back to his hometown in southern West Virginia. I guess he needed help from his family to deal with losing the love of his life or for raising a girl all by himself. He really struggled in those early days. He tried not to show it, but even as a little kid, I knew. Dad didn't like to talk about mom. He said the pain of losing her was still too fresh in his memory. And even to this day, 16 years after she passed, he still rarely speaks of her. The one exception was this past spring at my high school graduation. After the commencement, I tracked him down in the sea of other parents and family members. He took my picture with my Momo Sally and Papa Harold, his parents, then wrapped me in the biggest hug, like he was afraid of letting me go, afraid to lose me.
4: I love you, Fawn.
3: I love you too, Dad. He finally pulled back, placing his hands on my shoulders. His eyes were glassy from trying to hold back tears.
4: I wish your mother were here to see you now. She would be just as proud of you as I am. God, you look just like her when we were your age. So beautiful. The day you were born, she said you had the good medicine. At the time, I thought she was still a little out of it from the labor and the drugs they gave her. But I can see it now. She wasn't talking about drugs or medication. She was talking about Cherokee medicine. Your spirit, your energy. I don't fully understand it. That isn't my world. It was hers. But then she said that her Awanita, her little fawn, would change the world. And looking at the brilliant, dedicated, amazing young woman you've turned out to be. I believe she was absolutely right. You will do anything you set your heart to, Fawn. And the world will be a better place with you in it.
3: I'd heard similar things all my life. Anyone can make a difference. You can be anything you want if you try your best. But the way my dad said it that day, the way he invoked my mom and my Cherokee heritage, that terrified me. I didn't let him know that, and I tried not to show it. But in trying to encourage me, those words instilled so much fear and doubt. Suddenly, I had no idea what I wanted to do with my life, what college I wanted to go to, or even where I wanted to be in a year. I panicked. And in that panic, I stopped researching colleges, I stopped applying for jobs, and I stopped looking to the future. I put my entire life and future on hold because I was terrified I wouldn't live up to the expectations of my amazing dad or the legacy of a woman I can barely remember. Luckily, through all of this, I've had Miranda at my side. Miranda Holt has been my best friend and neighbor since my dad and I moved here. She has been a constant companion and a source of mischief for as long as I can remember. In the spring before graduation, Miranda and I discovered paranormal investigation reality shows. We would spend entire weekends binging these shows, researching local places that were supposedly haunted, and contemplating buying our own EMF readers and other ghost hunting gear. We even started visiting the local cemeteries on Friday and Saturday nights, hoping to conjure up some restless soul caught between Earth and the great hereafter. We never saw anything that couldn't be easily explained by the wind rustling, some leaves, or the cry of an owl in the dark. But after graduation, when the summer started, we decided to use our newfound freedom to explore a few more notorious spots around the state. Miranda finally bit the bullet and ordered an EMF reader online. And when it came in, we decided to investigate the old Hoffman Place.
5: I can't believe you haven't heard of it.
3: What is the Hoffman Place? My dad was never really big into telling me ghost stories.
5: Uh, You need to get out more. Expand your circle. The Hoffman Place is an abandoned old house in Lincoln County. They say that way back in the 40s, this newlywed couple built the house from the ground up. They were young and happy and in love, but then the Japanese attacked Pearl Harbor and the U.S. entered World War II. The husband joined the war effort while his new bride stayed behind to keep the home fires burning. After the war, the husband came back a different man. He was cold and distant and he started drinking. They say he used the bottle to forget what he saw and did in Europe, trying to numb the pain. It didn't take long before he was drinking all the time, and he started getting mean. He wasn't physical, not at first. He'd scream at her, call her names, tell her she was useless. But after a few months of that, he started pushing her. And from there, it was no time at all before he hit her for the first time. Then the beatings came. He would beat her until his arms were sore from swinging, and she would lay there on the floor and take it. One day, while he was gone to work at the mine, a tall, handsome stranger came knocking on the door. He was a traveling salesman, there to peddle his wares, but craving any attention that didn't come from the drunk, violent, wretch of a husband she had, she invited him in to listen to his sales pitch. It didn't matter what he was selling, because he was handsome, and he was charming, and he was sweet. Before she had time to think about what she was doing, she was on him. Kissing him, caressing him, and giving herself over to him. Well, it just so happened that the mine her husband worked at was shut down that day. And pink slip in one hand and bottle of moonshine in the other, he came home in the middle of their little tryst. In a drunken rage, he slung the bottle at the salesman, knocking him out. He then beat his poor wife worse than he ever had before. Broken and bloody on the floor, she begged for death. And he would grant her that, too. The husband grabbed a knife from the kitchen and stabbed his wife and the salesman more times than anyone could count. When the deed was done, he left what was left of their mangled bodies in a bloody heap on the floor. A river of blood trickling to the front door, across the porch, down the front steps, and into the yard. No one ever saw the husband again. And to this day, they say if you go to the old Hoffman place on a full moon, you can hear the wife's screams and see the blood flowing down the steps. Have you ever been? Yeah, I've been a couple of times with my older sister, but never on a full moon. The place is still pretty creepy.
3: I don't know. I've never done anything like that before.
5: Come on, we'll be fine. It's just a story. It'll be fun.
3: Against my better judgment, I agreed to go. We waited until the next full moon, then I told my dad I was staying the night at Miranda's house, and she told her parents she was staying with me. We had to drive over an hour to reach the place, and it was at the end of a long, narrow holler with a gravel road that turned into a dirt road through the headlights on miranda's mom's car and the moonlight we could see the house it was old and run down most of the windows shattered or taken over by vines the front door was missing but the inside was way too dark to make out from the driveway
5: no one's been here in almost 80 years
3: Wait, didn't you say that you used to come here all the time with your sister? Well, yeah, but we never went inside. We were too
5: creeped out by this place.
3: I took a deep breath, steadying my nerves. Miranda shut off the car's engine and killed the headlights. She grabbed her cell phone and the EMF reader we had bought.
5: Let's do this.
3: We got out of the car, my hands trembling slightly. We both turned on the flashlights on our cell phones and slowly crept toward the house. I had a really bad feeling about the house and about being there. The hair on the back of my neck standing on end, goosebumps popping up along my arms and knots forming in my stomach. Miranda and I locked arms, both of us clearly scared, but too proud to admit it. I shone the light of my phone on the front steps as we approached the house, searching for signs of blood. The steps were old and wooden, and despite their age and years of neglect, were in surprisingly good shape. They were brown, darkened by the rain earlier today. But there was no blood. I sighed in relief. Come on. She pulled me forward and up the steps. The old wood groaned in protest, but the steps held. We shone our flashlights through the open doorway into the house. From out here, we couldn't see much more than some old furniture and a fireplace. Are you ready? No, not really. Don't chicken
5: out on me now. We've come all this way. Let's do it.
3: Miranda pulled on my arm gently, and we stepped through the threshold and into the house. I was nearly overwhelmed by the musty smell of mildewed furniture, but once I adjusted to that, I took stock of what I was seeing. The house had a very simple layout with an open floor plan. We were standing in a small living room filled with a couple of old armchairs next to a fireplace, some end tables, and an old floor model radio. The kitchen was sparse, with only a large iron stove, a table, a sink, and a few cabinets. One door to the right led to what I assumed to be a bedroom. The house didn't look lived in, as I was sure no one other than amateur investigators like us had been here in decades. But I looked as though everything was just as it had been the morning Mr. Hoffman left for work that fateful day. A small stack of dishes sat next to the sink, waiting nearly a century for a washing that would never come. A broom leaned in a corner in the kitchen, and a knitted blanket was half-draped over one of the armchairs. I didn't feel scared so much as I just felt sorrowful for the lives that could have been here, by the family that was torn apart by war and by alcohol. My heart ached for Mrs. Hoffman.
5: Let's go check out the bedroom.
3: I let her pull me, not only physically, but mentally and emotionally from this moment of loss and pain. Miranda swung open the door and I gasped. The room was a bedroom, and the white sheets were soaked through with blood that had been dried years ago. They had removed the bodies, but had left the soiled sheets like everything else the Hoffmans had owned behind as a painful reminder of what had happened here.
5: COOL.
3: I found it more disturbing than cool. Up until this moment, it had all just been a story. A sad and ultimately creepy story, but something you could convince yourself didn't happen. Something you told your your friends or someone around a campfire or during a sleepover to keep them looking over their shoulder for the rest of the night. But seeing this room, seeing these soiled sheets, it made it all real. It turned a scary story into a real-life tragedy. Something caught my eye in the corner of the room. There was a simple little dresser there with a small wooden box. I walked over to it realizing it was a jewelry box. The lid open and a photograph taped on the inside of it. It was a couple on their wedding day, the bride smiling ear to ear the groom with a stern look on his face. I flipped the picture over and read the back. Ronald and Mabel Hoffman, March 16th, 1941 Ha! (gasps) I jumped, scared and angry all at once. Uh, Don't (laughs) do that, you jerk! I punched Miranda playfully on the arm as she laughed. The scare put me on edge. And I took a deep breath to steady my nerves.
5: Come on, that was hilarious. What have you got there?
3: It's it's a it's a picture of the Hoffman's. I turned to show her, and as I did, I thought I saw someone outside the window staring in at us. <gasps> I quickly turned my attention to the window, but there was no one there. What is it? Miranda turned to look out the window too, the smile on her face quickly replaced by a look of concern. N-nothing, I I guess I'm just a little on edge, but uh, this is a picture of the Hoffmans on their wedding day. As I showed Miranda the photograph, I couldn't take my eyes away from the window. It was filthy, covered in years of grime but I could still make out the shapes of the trees beyond it. Had I imagined the figure was being in this place messing with me? I heard a crackling, static like whine, and looked to see the EMF reader in Miranda's hand light up. Then through the dirt and grime on the window, something appeared. It was as if someone were drawing or tracing something, but there was no one on the other side of the glass. It started as a vertical line, then it bent at the right angle. My blood ran cold and I stood petrified. Miranda must have noticed my reaction and she turned to look at the window, too. We both stood there, transfixed, as it made the same shape again beside the first, but then it added to the second one. It was spelling something l e a v e leave I stood there too scared to move frozen to the floor then I heard the shutter sound effect from Miranda's phone as she snapped a picture of the window something slammed into the wall next to the window and we both screamed Ah! it was the jewelry box and the necklaces and rings scattered all across the room. Miranda, out of instinct, threw the EMF reader at the same spot, shattering it into a million little shards of plastic and cheap electronic components. I grabbed Miranda by the arm and turned to run, but the s- the door it it slammed shut as we reached it. I tried the knob, but it wouldn't. It wouldn't turn, and the door wouldn't budge. We beat on the door, screaming for help, tears streaming down our faces. Something slammed against the window, and I turned to see a bloody handprint streaking down the glass. Dresser drawers flew open, clothes that had sat in them for decades flung out by some unseen hand and dropping to the floor. I held Miranda close, screaming and crying, not knowing what else to do, and she clung just as tightly to me. A voice sounded from nowhere, and yet from everywhere, and all at once everything stopped and the door swung back open. The house was deathly silent, and Miranda and I looked to each other, neither of us knowing what to do next. Slowly, tentatively, we stepped into the main room of the house. It was just as we had left it. The bedroom door slammed shut behind us and we spun, but there was no one there. I pulled Miranda's arm again, both of us turning. The furniture was all shoved back to the edge of the walls and in the middle of the floor, back to us, was a person lying on their side. Again I froze in terror, my heart pounding in my chest. The only sound registering in my head that of Miranda's shaky breathing next to me. Slowly, I made my way over to the figure, but just as I set my hand on their shoulder, they had vanished. I jumped up and grabbed Miranda by the shoulder, shaking her. Miranda, we have to go!
5: Do you still have the picture?
3: I didn't realize it, but I was still clinging to the photograph. I looked at it again, and the stern look on Ronald's face had changed to that of rage. Mabel's to one of pain and fear. I felt something then, like water running at my feet. Hesitantly I looked down, the floors of the room completely soaked in what looked like blood. It flowed from the spot where the figure had been lying, a crimson river that flowed across the room, over the porch and down the steps. My own blood ran cold. We both ran through the blood out of the house, blood splashing to cover our shoes and lower legs. The blood spilled out into the yard, stopping just before it reached the car. We both climbed in and Miranda started it, driving as fast as possible away. We sat in silence for a long time, the only sound our own heavy breathing. When we made it back to Miranda's house, we were shocked to see that our legs and shoes were clean with no trace of blood anywhere. We sat in the car in her driveway, the engine off. I realized I was still holding the photograph. It had reverted back to the way it had originally looked, a happy bride and her serious groom.
5: That was exhilarating.
3: I nodded my head. She was right. I felt more alive, more driven, than I had since graduation. I didn't know what I wanted to do with my life, but I knew I would be chasing this thrill for a long time.
0: A little adventure is good to get the blood pumping and to feel young again. But some adventures are more dangerous than others. And just because you come out the other side unharmed, that doesn't mean you come through it unchanged. Nita and Miranda's adventuring is just getting started. But that's all the time we have for this visit. Thank you again for joining us. We'll be back again on Monday, November 28th, 2022. So enjoy this season of giving thanks. The team here at Deep Hollows and Dark Hearts is especially thankful for all of you listeners and want to wish you all a wonderful Thanksgiving. If you're feeling extra giving this season and would like to support the podcast, you can do so by going to anchor.fm slash deephollowspod slash support to donate. There will be a link in this episode's description. We understand not everyone can help monetarily, especially during this time of year, so we ask that if you can't give, that you give us a rating and review and tell everyone you know about the show. If you'd like to stay up to date on the latest news out of the holler, be sure to follow us on both Facebook and Twitter. If you have any questions, comments, or would like to submit either a story or an audition for our consideration, you can email us at deephollowspod at gmail.com. Between what lurks in these hollas and what festers in the hearts of men, it's a dangerous world out there. So stay safe. Until we meet again. This has been a production of Darkest Horizon Media. Oguo was written by John Adkins and narrated by Travis Ingram. Featuring the vocal talents of John Adkins as Raymond, Travis Ingram as Frank, and Tim Young as Neil. Crimson Steps was written by John Adkins. Featuring the vocal talents of Hannah Harvey as Awanita, Jillian Tate as Miranda, John Adkins as Joseph, and Shannon Duty as the ghost of Ronald. Our theme song is by Odie and I. You can find more of their music on Spotify, Bandcamp, and Soundcloud. Our outro music is by Caleb Luther. You can find Caleb's solo music along with his band Meet Me in the Matinee on Spotify, Bandcamp, and Soundcloud as well. Our artwork is by Nate Taylor You can find more of his work at Rainbow Bear Store on both Facebook and Instagram. I've been your host, John Adkins.